This is The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. David is the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel Casa Grande in Casa Grande, Arizona. It's not you. It is the work of God in you. It is through the resurrection power of Christ that we are redeemed. It's through the work of glorification that we are already seated in the heavenlies with Christ. On the one hand, we're told to look up because our redemption draweth nigh. But then Paul tells us here, no, because of where we're at, we ought to be able to look down because our redemption is complete. The scriptures teach us that we're saved by grace through faith alone. It's a gift of God that we have no place boasting in. You see, it doesn't matter what we do or don't do. Our works will never enable us to enter the kingdom. They will never make us right with God. It's only through the shed blood of Jesus that we can be saved. But does that mean that works aren't important? Certainly not. The scriptures also teach us that faith without works is dead. Let's join Pastor David in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 4, with part one of our message entitled, A Merciful Detour. In every one of our lives, I'm sure that each one of us has experienced some kind of a change that's taken place, something that was not planned, a change, a change of direction, sometimes in just our daily routine, sometimes it's like a major change, our entire life, suddenly we thought it was going this way, all of a sudden something happens and now we're going a totally different way. In the newspaper business, uh, there's the little phrase that the uh, editor might come running out to the press room and say, stop the presses, stop the presses. And we know that suddenly there's a new story that needs to be in tonight's paper. And so there's a rewrite, there's readjustments before the presses begin again. In the theater, the writers might stay up all night after opening night because something didn't quite work right. And so they're rewriting sections of the play And early in the morning, the actors get the rewritten version, and they've only got a few hours to get those memorized before the play begins later that evening. If you go shopping, as my wife and I have on occasion to a place like Costco, and you go with a particular item in mind that you know that you wanted at Costco because it was there last time, you go there this time, it's no longer there, they no longer carry it, and they have a substitute for it. Same way sometimes going to your favorite restaurant. Oh, the thing that I had like last year when I went here, they don't even carry it anymore. So substitutes and replacements. Some of you have moved lately. And with that move, uh, you've also had to put in a change of address to make sure that your mail gets rerouted to make sure you get all the political flyers and whatever else comes in your mail. In the game of football, they have what's called an interception. And at the point of an interception, everything moves. Suddenly, everybody that was going this way suddenly turns and everybody's going this way. Now, a major change of life. If you drive much at all, there's no doubt that you've experienced those little frustrations called detours. I want to go there. I can see where I want to go, but I can't get there from here. I've got to go someplace else. A lot of these things that that come into our lives for a variety of reasons, they happen to us. Sometimes, I know just in talking to some of you, it seems like they happen to you on a continual basis to where life is in, in a constant turmoil. 
Our direction gets rerouted. Our plans have to be changed. And for most of us, these are unwelcome incidences or interferences in our day. I know when I was working construction, when the boss would come out with a change order. It's like, ah, I was going this way. Now you come out with a change order. We've got to change. We've got to rearrange. We've got to re-gear. We've got to retool because a change order has come into play. The first portion of chapter 2 of Ephesians. If you recall, we spent most of the time looking at verses 1 to 3, and I know that it wasn't a, a real uplifting message as I was given it, but I couldn't leave you there, so we did touch on verse 4. We touched on verse 4 about that, that little phrase, but God. But even before we got there, I wanted you to realize that outside of Christ, every man, every woman, every one, is dead in their trespasses and sins. That we were among those that Paul says were the sons of disobedience. He goes on and he, I mean, he continued to drive it home last week. He says that we conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of what? Children of wrath. That's what we were outside of Christ. But then, verse 4, this glorious contrasting conjunction, but God. And suddenly, everything changes. Suddenly, everything, literally eternity, changes for us because of God. I didn't want to leave you hopeless last week, so we touched on that, but we didn't go into it fully and completely. So that's where I want to pick up this morning as we continue on in the study, as we continue on in the thought process of what Paul is speaking here in chapter 2 of Ephesians and what the Holy Spirit is leading him to give to all of us. It was, yes, it was an ancient message, but I believe it's a message also for the modern church, for us today. And because in the Greek, verses 1 through 7 is all one sentence, I want to back up this morning, go back over that despicable you again, and then we'll come into verse 4 and read on through uh, verse 7. So, chapter 2 of Ephesians, beginning in verse 1. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he's raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Beloved, as I said before, verses 4 through 7 changes everything. Suddenly, all of eternity before us, suddenly, in light of those verses, an offer has been placed before the sons of disobedience, but a gift has been placed before the children of wrath. 
God is now presenting to all of mankind a fresh new story. Stop the presses. There's a new story that's coming in. God has provided new scripts for every one of us to learn and to know. Know who we are now in Christ, not who we were in the world. There's truly an, an alternate that's been substituted. Christ himself has been substituted for our own lives and deaths. We have the opportunity to get an eternal change of address, don't we? Not where we were headed, but a whole new one. God has literally intercepted our life path, and now we're called to change. I look at it and understand that he's granted to us a magnificent and a very merciful detour. In this section of Ephesians 2, Paul continues to give the contrast of our life before Christ and since Christ. But now he's zeroing in on that, that cause and effect of our faith in Christ. The earlier cause and effect is, is pretty easy to see. The cause was that we were in our trespasses and sins. We were fleshly driven. We were walking according to the power of the air. We were following the ways of the world. That was the cause. The effect of that was simply this. We were dead. We were dead spiritually and morally dead. Now we move into this new section, we move into the detour, we move into the interception of God in our lives. And now there's this whole new and a different cause and effect that's working in our lives. The cause is His great love with which He loved us. And the effect is, is now we've been made alive together with Christ. We were dead, now we're alive. There's so much more to it, but that, that's the basic idea and the thought of what Paul is telling us here in verses 4 through 7. But Paul begins this section with the subject of the declaration, God himself. God is the subject of all that Paul is speaking here. In Paul's mind, and should be also in our mind, is the understanding that all of salvation, all of it stems from a beginning point that is the beginning point in the mind and in the heart of God himself. It wasn't because you woke up one day and said, you know what, I need to look for something that will save me from eternity. It wasn't because you woke up someday and said, you know what, I am a wretch. No, God, because of his love for us, while we were still his enemies, while we were still dead in our trespasses and sin, God commended or showed his love toward us through sending Christ to die for us. You see, God is the initiator in this love relationship. Always has been. It began in his mind and in his heart. Paul directs our attention and focus to God, describing him as being rich in mercy. And to be rich in mercy means that God's mercy isn't just great, beloved. No, God's mercy is abounding. It's abundant. It is more than sufficient for all of our needs. As a matter of fact, merciful is one of those attributes of God that we read throughout the Word of God. It describes His character. He declares it Himself, and both the Old Testament writers, the prophets proclaimed it over and over again. Our God is a merciful God. You remember the story in the book of Exodus 
Moses standing before the people. He had been up on the mountain. God had called him up to the mountain. God gave him the Ten Commandments, and he had come down. And as he was coming down the mountain, he could hear the people. And as he got down a little bit closer, he realized, you know what? Uh, What's going on here is not right. Because the children of Israel, while they were waiting for Moses, they decided to switch totally and start this whole pagan worship of this golden calf. And you remember the story. Moses goes to Aaron, hey, what's going on here? Aaron says, you know, I don't know. They just kind of gave me all their gold. I threw it in the fire. Out jumps this golden calf. And now they're all worshiping. I don't know what happened. No, Aaron, you're just as guilty. You're the one that fashioned it. And so what did Moses do with the Ten Commandments? He threw them down. He broke them. And at that point in time, God was completely justified to wipe out all of Israel. To suddenly just take them out totally and start fresh and new. He says, you know what? I've been dealing with you guys long enough. Took you out of Egypt. You've done nothing but mumble and complain the whole time. Now you're going into pagan worship. We're done. We're going to start all over. But God. But God. Because, again, of the greatness of his mercy the extent of his long-suffering and patience toward us. He calls Moses back up on the mountain. He says, no, no, Moses, we're not going to wipe them out. Come on back up on the mountain, Moses. And as he brings Moses up on the mountain, God reveals to Moses in even a deeper way at that point in time. And as Moses is hid in the cleft of the rock, literally the word says that God passed by him and God declared to Moses who he was. And in Exodus 34, it says that the Lord declared that he is the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's the kind of God we serve, folks. King Hezekiah, as he was bringing the children, years later as they had established the nation, the nation had once again just really faltered in their worship of the one true God, Jehovah. They were, again, beginning to to worship these pagan idols. And King Hezekiah comes and he calls for a great revival among the people. And he calls them to himself. And he tells them in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, He says, come back to the Lord, for the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn his face from you if you return to him. See, many times we might think, you know what, I've failed the Lord so many times. The Lord won't receive me back. You know what, that's a lie of the enemy. That's a lie of Satan himself coming before you. Because God says, God declares, if you will return to me. I will in no wise cast you out. The psalmist declared the mercy of God over and over. In Psalm 86, verse 15, we read, But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and in truth. Psalm 103, verses 8 through 11 of that psalm declare, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Amen? Amen. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that He hasn't dealt with me according to my sins. He hasn't dealt with me according to the multiplicity of my iniquities. He's dealt with me in grace, mercy, long-suffering. 
He says, for as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. This mercy that Paul writes here, but God who is rich in mercy, means that he has his pity, he has his compassion, he has a feeling of sympathy toward us. He understands that we are dust. He understands the failings and the frailty of our character. Oh, he doesn't dismiss it. He doesn't wink at sin. God has compassion on those that will turn back to him because of his great love with which he loved us. And again, there we even speak of another of the attributes of God, the fact that God is love. He's not only love, and so many people say, well, God is a God of love, and he wouldn't do this, and he wouldn't do this. Understand, no, love is only one of a multitude of his attributes, and they work together in harmony with each other. Love works in conjunction with all of these other attributes. And Paul isn't satisfied simply to say that it was the love of God. No, he speaks and writes about the great love of God. That word great speaks in reference to the amount and the intensity of his love. It's abundant in every respect. It speaks to us of the extent and the ability of that love. The fact that it excels in all aspects in our lives. That's the great love of God working in our behalf. Is describing what many of you know and you've heard of as the agape love of God. It's a great Greek word, and we don't understand it uh, here in our Western English culture. But that agape love is an unlimited, it's a boundless, it is a selfless love. It's a love that just gives and is laid out before us, not because we deserve it, not even because we love him back. Because, as I shared before, even while we were his enemies, his love was there for us, his compassion for us. This is the quantity and the quality of the love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses. Because of that great love, not only has our direction changed, our position has also changed. As we come to faith in Christ, we're transported literally from death into life. He says that he has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He puts in this little parenthesis here that he speaks about more in in verses uh, 8 and 9, which we'll look at next week. But he says he's made us alive with Christ, and he's raised us up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And here Paul is speaking about these two dynamics that take place in our lives, the very moment of conversion, the very moment of salvation within our lives. There is this, again, the work of the alternate, the work of the the substitute in our lives that brings about our redemption, the work of Christ bringing about our redemption. But then we also have that change of address, which is our glorification. We have these two things that take place, our redemption and our glorification, at the very moment of salvation. It's a done and it's a complete deal. Through our redemption, we who were dead were made alive, but not as the old man. The old man has been removed, and there is a new alternate in its place. 
Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, and yet it's not me who lives. It's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul understands, man, it's, it's no longer me. There's an alternate. There's a substitution that's there. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, what? He is a new creation. Old things have been passed away, and behold, all things have become new. We experience that resurrection power, the same resurrection power, that was demonstrated first in Christ when God raised him from the dead. And then we, who were dead, are now made alive together with Christ. Paul also in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells about that deadness being made alive. He writes about, so when this corruptible has put on incorruption, when this mortal has put on immortality, then shall we be brought to pass that saying which is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know about you. I am looking forward to getting rid of the carcass, this stinky thing that we have to haul around all the time. Now, I'm not looking for a fast way out. Understand that, okay? I'm waiting for his time. It's like the preacher that was preaching about heaven, and he says, How many of you want to go to heaven? Raise your hand, and everybody in the whole congregation raised their hand, except one guy that he saw just sitting in the back. And uh, so he says again, how many, how many of you all here this morning want to go to heaven? Raise your hand. And everybody raises their hand except that one guy back in the back, and he doesn't raise his hand. So after the service, pastor's kind of worried. So he goes back to old brother Mike, and he says, Mike, I noticed you didn't raise your hand when we when were talking about going to heaven. Don't you want to go to heaven? He says, well, yeah, Pastor, I want to go to heaven, but I thought maybe you were getting a bus load up for this afternoon. (laughs) So that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, yes, we want to go. We want to see this, this corruptible put on incorruption. We want to see this mortal put on immortality. But in his timing, we understand that. But, beloved, heaven ought to be on our mind. We ought We ought to have that thought. We ought to have that anticipation in our lives. Our glorification next is demonstrated by what Paul says, literally a change of address. He says we're now seated together in the heavenly places in Christ. We're raised up together. We experience the resurrection power when we come alive from the dead, but it's the power of the glorification that we're placed together with Christ in the heavenlies. And it's interesting that Paul speaks of both of these things in the past tense. They've already been completed. So what do we make of that? I don't know about you, but this morning I woke up and it was this same old flesh that was here. I looked outside and guess what? I was still in Casa Grande. <laughs> now it's, it's nice enough, but it sure ain't heaven. But Paul says we are seated in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus. We need to understand that in God's eyes, the process is complete. It is a done deal. We're the ones that are bound by the clock. We're the ones that are bound by the rising and the setting of the sun. 
God isn't. And so in his understanding, in his mindset, it is a completed work. Beloved, you are already seated in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus. Your redemption is complete in him. And when the enemy brings fear and doubt, beloved, understand, it's not you. It is the work of God in you. It is through the resurrection power of Christ that we are redeemed. It is through the work of glorification that we are already seated in the heavenlies with Christ. On the one hand, we're told to look up because our redemption draweth nigh. But then Paul tells us here, no, because of where we're at, we ought to be able to look down because our redemption is complete. We ought to be able to understand, no, I am complete in Christ. And again, as marvelous as all of this is for us, it truly is for God's glory. All of it's for His glory. We simply become the recipients of His mercy and of His grace. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to The Open Word, the teaching ministry of Pastor David Landry of Calvary Chapel Casa Grande in Casa Grande, Arizona. To learn more about The Open Word, visit our website at theopenword.com. You can download today's teaching or subscribe to The Open Word Podcast. Subscribing to The Open Word Podcast is the best way to stay up to date with all the latest messages from David. To subscribe, log on to theopenword.com, click on the podcast option on the homepage, or simply search for The Open Word in the iTunes Store. You can also give us a call if you'd like. That number to call is 520-836-9676. That's 520-836-9676. Another option to get in touch with us is to send us an email. Our email address is info at theopenword.com. That's info at theopenword.com. When you contact us, please let us know the call letters of the station you heard The Open Word on and how today's broadcast has blessed you. Your feedback helps us know the Lord's direction for this ministry. Once again, you've been listening to The Open Word with Pastor David Landry of Calvary Chapel in Casa Grande, Arizona. In the next edition of The Open Word, David will continue teaching through God's Word. So please make plans to join us again and may God richly bless you.